Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. What does it mean to shelter at home when home isn't a safe place? Abusers can use the virus as somewhat of a scare tactic. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, how domestic violence organizations are responding to coronavirus. And the Grammy-winning Indigo Girls on life off the road and the power of music to pull people through rough times. The people that were vulnerable then, you know, that we were talking about in a lot of our songwriting pre-COVID are still the most vulnerable now. People that don't have as many resources, people don't have as much money, they're the most vulnerable still. Coronavirus and the Grammy-winning Indigo Girls on life off the road and the power of music to pull people through. Plus, Georgians stepping up to support each other with resilience and ingenuity. There's no single answer out there. This is going to be a community effort. Uh, but we are going to take care of each other. There is an end to this. The news is first. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. At a press conference on Wednesday, Governor Kemp pointed to another unfortunate trend in public health. We have been told by one area, Atlanta Hospital, that they are seeing a 15% increase in domestic violence cases at their facilities. People working in the field predict that the stresses of the current lockdown will add additional complications and even dangers for victims and survivors of domestic violence. And even that federal stimulus checks being sent to adults across the country may become leverage for abusers. Here with more on the particular vulnerabilities of this time is Jamie Perez, director of the Safe and Stable Families Project for the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation. She's joining us via Skype. Jamie, welcome and thank you. Thank you. And Katha Blackwell is Vice President of Shelter and Supportive Housing Services for the Partnership Against Domestic Violence, which serves more than 20,000 individuals in Metro Atlanta each year. Katha, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. All right, I'm going to start with you, Jamie. We've been ordered to stay in our homes. So practically speaking, what does that mean for people in unsafe home or partner situations? Well, what it can mean is that people who otherwise might be able to seek assistance or get out or get help are further isolated than they typically would be. But in this case, people are being forced to stay in a home with abusers and uh, abusers can use the virus as somewhat of a scare tactic to ensure that their victims are not leaving the home. Our victims are less likely to be alone long enough to file for a protective order or perhaps call a domestic violence hotline without being observed by their abuser. And for our low-income victims that are in potentially small spaces, that seems to be kind of a breeding ground where the tension and likelihood of violence can increase if there's not a whole lot of space to get away from that situation, even within the home. Um, They're also dealing with financial uncertainty right now, so they might be less likely to be able to leave even if there were options for that. Shelters and transitional housing and motels and hotels are full or they may be closing or restricting intake due to social distancing. And I also know on the flip side of that, that some victims are afraid to go into such places because it does mean they're going to have to be around a broader group of people at a time when they're trying to isolate themselves to not contract the virus. Those are a lot of obstacles, and I'd love to dig into some of them. 
Katha, Jamie mentioned that this could be an opportunity for those who are abusers. What kind of tactics might abusers be able to use more, more successfully during this time of isolation? Yes, they, they may be able to utilize um, a fear tactic, causing the victim to feel as though they can't go anywhere. It's not safe for you to go outside. COVID-19 is, is spreading everywhere. You might as well stay home. And mm -hmm. so I can definitely see abusers using fear as well as trying to control financial um, resources, especially when it comes to even uh, medical care. Yeah. So there's a, an array of different things that could take place during this time with victims who are stuck at home or can't get out because they're home with their abuser. Mm. Well, you're in charge of both the 24-7 crisis line, along with shelter and supportive housing for the Partnership Against Domestic Violence. These are services in Fulton and Gwinnett counties. But there are also shared living spaces, potentially dangerous for the spread of COVID-19. Have you changed the way that these safe spaces are operating? Absolutely. Um, once we once we knew about COVID-19 breaking out, we split up the families into having their own room. And so we've set it up to where any new clients, we've been placing them into hotels. But even with that, the, the funding is pretty limited in regards to how far we can go with putting them in hotels. Well, Jamie, you, one might think that someone who's left an abusive intimate partner would be safer right now. But you have pointed out that this is a, also a particularly risky time for them. What additional challenges are they facing as we're all feeling the ripple effects of COVID-19? Right. So people who have escaped their abusive relationship and maybe um, finding their independence are now finding their support systems interrupted, you know, a loss of job, financial support, potentially the abuser who is paying child support has lost their job. Their relationships with family and friends are now strained with the social distancing and then I know that our social workers have found that some of our survivors who have been in the process of moving to a new and confidential location have seen that process halted. You know, childcare is being closed down. And so if someone does still need to work to maintain their housing, they may have to turn back to an abuser for that childcare. And then with visitation for people who have protective orders in place or who have divorced their abusers, we're seeing a lot of people using the pandemic as a reason to withhold visitation with the other party. So mm -hmm. if an abuser is the person who last had the children when this all came down, they now have a reason that they're saying they won't turn the children back over to our victims. And then mm -hmm. I do think that abusers could use the virus as a reason to get back in contact with a survivor, whether it's permitted by court order or not, um, they're, they're going to use this to say, check in and say, are you okay? Or they can use it to say they have symptoms. And um, this is just creating a reason for that communication to start back up, which can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the particular ways that the COVID-19 isolation is exacerbating, in some cases, the potential for domestic abuse and violence inside of homes. Jamie Perez is with me from the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation and Katha Blackwell from the Partnership Against Domestic Violence. We've been hearing a lot, of course, about the stimulus package signed by the president late last week, which would give single adults who filed a tax return $1,200 apiece with adjustments based on income and number of children. Jamie, you say that the money may be particularly difficult for your clients to access. What are some of the barriers? Yeah, so while this would obviously be huge for many of them, um, 
again, for low-income survivors who maybe don't have bank accounts, it's our understanding these are going to be sent by mail to the last mailing address they had on file, which could make it a longer turnaround time for them to receive those funds. For survivors seeking confidential locations to escape their abuser knowing where they are, they may have moved more frequently. So they're going to have to update that information. Um, The last bank account on file could have been a joint account. And then we get into this situation where if that isn't updated or addressed before those checks go out, now we have to reach back out to an abuser who may have been the person to receive that joint stimulus check. We also know that abusers engage in financial abuse frequently. So a lot of our uh, survivors may not be aware of how taxes were filed previously, or an abuser may have improperly claimed children, so they may get the child portion of that check. Um, Again, which forces them to have to sort this out and delays their ability to get the funding um, in a timely manner. So it's kind of a, you know, hard time right now for people to figure out exactly what they need to do and make sure that our survivors have access to Internet and the information they need to go address these issues once that information is available. Well, and both of the organizations that you work for point out that domestic violence victims are not all women. They're not all low-income people, certainly. Kath, I'm wondering about the children. How is the COVID-19 crisis impacting arrangements for survivors and their children or or children who might be in abusive environments? Well, it's definitely a struggle. Uh, it's, it's a huge impact on them. Um, these are innocent children who don't have any real power, per se, to get out of the situation they're in. And so I can only imagine the magnitude of children who may experience what domestic violence is like while they're at home, because depending on the situation, abusers will wait till the children go to school to become more violent. They'll do different things um, before the children come home from school. But now most of the children are home. So any abuser, you can only mask yourself for so long before your children actually see that you are abusive. And so I can only imagine what children are doing or going through at this time, um, being in those homes and not feeling like they have the power to do anything. We had recently had a a client who had returned to her abuser and she just came back to us. And so her son, he was eager to come back to us because he just did not want to be in that environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, These children are so innocent. And even in the shelter, we do everything we can to just help them be children, help them to have fun while they're here. Um, give them as many activities as we can, but to help them get to a life of of peace because the children, they just want to be in a peaceful environment. There are so many people who have a variety of needs right now, but I think a lot of people who also want to help. How can other people support survivors of intimate partner violence right now? If you have the means, please donate. Hotel stays is the greatest need right now because we're trying to keep everyone separated just in case anyone gets COVID-19 or tests positive. Right now, we don't have that in any of our shelters. However, we're trying to prepare in the event that we do so that way everyone can be isolated within their own room. So even a hotel stay um, is helpful. If If anyone who can fund those opportunities, we greatly appreciate that. Um, I'll add, we have similar needs at the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation. We do provide client assistance in the form of rent, utilities, security deposits, transportation, and on occasion, childcare. So 
The use of unrestricted funds is key to supporting our clients during this time. And then the second way in which individuals who are lawyers can help is, you know, right now the court has put on hold the evidentiary hearings for protective orders. So while victims can still go to the courthouse to obtain protective orders, the second hearing that is required as part of that is indefinitely on hold. So when those start back up, we're going to see a surge in the need for our attorneys to volunteer their time and represent survivors. How about for people who feel threatened right now? Well, for those who feel threatened right now, I'm sure there are some who are within a domestic violence relationship who can't leave. It's best to safety plan as much as you can. In the event that a violent situation takes place, think about where in your home can you stay safe? Can you run to the bathroom and lock the door? Can you call a friend and see if you can come over to that place? It now is the time to definitely come up with your options and think about what those options are in the event that something happens or, or domestic violence breaks out. And I'd like to stress that when it comes to leaving an abusive relationship, that's the most dangerous time. So if you are going to leave, plan as much as you can and be safe. I'll just add, I mean, exactly what Katha said is correct. And if they have an opportunity, is if, if they're concerned about their ability to properly safety plan or be creative in that sense, if they have the opportunity to call a hotline, um, if they can find a few minutes to do that, there are experts on that hotline that are able to walk them through some of the things Katha just said. And part of that may be if they ultimately feel they need to get a protective order, there is still that resource available. Unfortunately, it's not remote yet in Fulton County, but if they're able to find a way to the courthouse, they can still get access to protective orders. And then when they're there, they can make those phone calls to hotlines or whatever it may be where we can um, attempt to help provide shelter. While AVLF does not run an actual shelter, we do have that assistance available to help with hotels. Well, I want to thank you both for your time and both for the work that you do so much. Thank you for having us and shedding light on these issues. Thank you so much. Jamie Perez provides legal support to survivors of intimate partner violence through the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation. Katha Blackwell is vice president of shelter and supportive housing services for the Partnership Against Domestic Violence, serving metropolitan Atlanta. And we have links to both of their websites on gpbnews.org, so you can make a donation if you wish. But if you or someone you know is concerned for their safety, call the Georgia Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 That's 800-334-2836. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Mid-March, just as sporting events were scrapped and music festivals and the Olympics got postponed, Coldplay's Chris Martin, John Legend, Pink, and my guests, Indigo Girl, started streaming live performances online. Wow. Okay. Ready? Yep. Thanks, y'all. We love you. Amy Ray and Emily Salier sat in the living room, sang, and talked with some 70,000 viewers on Facebook and Instagram Live. The release for their new album, Look Long, got pushed back until May 22nd. A few songs are already out, like this one, but the title I can't say on the radio, so I'll use my mom's trick and call it Shoot Kickin'.
Indigo Girls have built a close community over the decades, so we were curious about how two musicians so used to being on the road are experiencing this unprecedented period of social isolation. I caught up with Emily, hunkered down in a Florida beach house with her wife and daughter Cleo. Amy was at home in North Georgia with her family. Emily Saliers, hello. Hey, how are you, Virginia? Thanks for having us. I'm so glad to speak with you. And Amy Ray, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was a huge response that you had to this live stream. These informal home concerts, they've now become kind of a thing. But what prompted you two to jump on this so early? We had a bunch of cool shows uh, scheduled up in the sort of uh, New York area. And as soon as we knew that it was looking like everything was going to have to be canceled because of the virus, Amy and I both had the same thought at the same time, which was, well, we can't do a concert live in person like this, so let's just do a Facebook, a Facebook and an Insta a broadcast, and we'll just make it real casual. And and so it was just some way that we could bridge between the shows that got canceled and all the separation that people were experiencing and how much we need music to, to sort of make us feel better and join our community together. Well, does that happen to you two a lot? I mean, you've known each other. You've been playing together since high school. Do you often have the same thought? <laughs> It's we we share a brainstem, but we have separate sides of it. So we'll have the same end result, but we usually figure out a different way to go about it from each other. <laughs> I'm thinking of this image in the song "Shame on You," where there's a roadblock late at night, and they're looking for immigrants. Let's hear a little bit of that. Your community knows your music, looks to these songs and stories to, to, to help interpret the world, and you've often been champions of the vulnerable. Now it feels like everybody is vulnerable. What, what kind of stories are unfolding for you now? I mean, my feeling is that the people that are vulnerable were vulnerable then, you know, that we were talking about in a lot of our songwriting pre-COVID virus are still the most vulnerable now. I mean, people that are immigrants, um, undocumented folks, but it's true that all of us are in this boat together in a different way, that we're all vulnerable to a certain degree. And we've never in our lifetime seen anything like this. So I think a lot about, I'm thinking a lot about who the heroes are right now, you know, the doctors and the healthcare professionals and the first responders and people that work with homeless people and people that are working at grocery stores and, you know, the essential businesses. And I feel a ton of gratitude because I have what I need, you know, and can be where I am and not have to worry as much. And so that makes me want to think about what other people are going through and helping and finding ways to help. And that's sort of how it strikes me. Yeah. Well, you've also had to, both of you, cancel the tour. What does that mean for people who are so used to being on the road to be in one place at home with your families? And you both have kids, so you're looking at homeschooling. What, what's that experience like? Well, I think... You know, first of all, Amy and I are privileged in a way that many musicians who just kind of live show to show uh, are not. And so, again, you have the disparity between artists like me and Amy who are, we're going to be okay, you know, and there are other artists, uh, struggling artists and or independent artists who it, it's, it's tougher for them. It, there's much more fear about what's going to happen and will they ever catch up and stuff like that. But as far as back to your question about what it's like 
being at home, I mean, <laughs> we're talking to other parents. I am and my wife is. And some of the parents are like, I feel terrible. I've never been so uptight with my kids <laughs> in their entire life. And, you know, we're practicing on our communication and we're just like working it out. And at first I felt quite claustrophobic at the isolation and being with family members 24-7. And now it's starting to unveil itself as a deeper pleasure uh, of spending time with family. I know it's going to bring me closer to my child, um, but we are in the midst of something that is epic and historic. And, you know, we, we never expect to live through something like this. Um, so it's everything is kind of a mixed bag for me. I'm counting my blessings and feeling grateful. And it feels to me like one of the unexpected things that's come out of this time is how it has slowed so many of us down, you know, who are always busy and having someplace to be and calculating traffic when we want to get someplace. What, what does that feel like to you? Is this an opportunity, do you think, to do things differently? You know, it's funny because I'm, I'm really busy because it's like we're gone so much. I have this like long list of stuff that needed to get done, and I was putting it off for a year, you know, like, fix this, fix that, repaint this. It's a big honey-do list, and so I'm slowed down in some ways, in a lot of ways, but I live in the woods, and I'm always kind of retreating when I'm home. Uh, I mean, I have room to roam, and, uh, and, and I have room to get all my stuff done, and I have my child and my partner here, and her dad and, and and his husband. And so I spend most of my time just having gratitude for that and thinking about like, well, what can I do to help this person or that person? You know, my sister is a doctor. She's in Atlanta. She's infectious disease and she's working all the time and on the front lines of this. And I'm just thinking about that and texting her, you know, don't answer this because I know you're busy, but I'm just sending you love and prayers and, you know, hoping that you're doing okay and you have enough masks, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So there's, for me, I, I'm volunteering at the food pantry here, and I'm just trying to, like, do whatever I can do. Because I honestly, I feel, I don't know what it is. It's like some weird compulsive reaction to this. You know, I'm trying to slow down, but I just feel anxious about it. So I'm so what helps me is to just do something for somebody else. But I'm trying to learn how to slow down generally, so maybe it'll help me. And I wonder for you, both of you with two young daughters, uh, what, what are you telling them? How are you talking to them about what's going on? Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of hard because you, you don't want to, you want to be honest, but you want it to be what they can handle. You know, you don't want it to feel weird and secretive because their imagination can be crazier than what you say to them sometimes. But in this case, it's the reality is crazy. <laughs> so, you know, we talk about it being a virus and how important it is for us all to stay healthy and protect everybody else by staying healthy and, release some of that stress, you know, but still be informed and answer her questions if she has them. Kids are so interesting because they're processing a lot of things silently, like outwardly silently. So, you know, Cleo won't talk about it and then all of a sudden she'll pop out with a question about it. But like Amy said, we talk about the community responsibility, um, but it's very, very interesting to see the way kids process internally. Mm. Um, and sometimes you have to keep checking in just to see if anything is truly, truly disturbing them. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a teachable moment. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm learning. <laughs> you all have been making music through 9-11, through the Great Recession, through times when things have been really tough. Uh, 
And, and, and I'm thinking now about what kind of world do we want to emerge into after this? You know, you have a new record that, that, that came from another time. What is it going to feel like to you to sing those songs at this point? I think there's going to be a heaviness that wasn't attached to the songs as I wrote some of them, that there will be now as I feel them when I sing them and, you know, just try to, I don't know, just sort of only through time can we unravel the effects of what we're going through right now. I think uh, you will all end, as far as I know, most of your shows with Closer to Fine, right? Do you still? <laughs> you will. trying to mix it, it up. That's always the question. Uh, Galileo sometimes are closer to fine, yeah. Well, those that, you know, the late 80s, uh, early 90s, you were you were kids when you wrote those songs. And <laughs> that kind of, you know, a little bit of bravado and a little bit of, uh, of crushing self-doubt, you know, cr- kind of careening back and forth. And, and well put. you're still singing that. That still feels like something real to you. Uh, how, how does it feel to you now to sing those songs? I mean, I think, the thing about like Closer to Fine or Galileo, the songs that we typically would close a show with, part of the reason is like back then when we were younger and we were singing them, we might have at times felt, you know, super earnest and maybe even heavy in a way that might not have had the same joy. But I think now I feel like those songs have taken on a celebratory tone that it's impossible not to end the show with them because nothing else feels that way. You know, it's like a great moment of everyone singing together and understanding each other and you know of all political stripes coming together and that's priceless to me like in in these times in these last 10 years or whatever where things have gotten more and more polarized I drank from the fountains there's more than one answer to these questions pointing me in a crooked line and the less I seek my source for some definitive Closer I am to find, yeah. Closer I am to find, yeah. Those songs continue to have, that kind of song has the same kind of meaning. There are other songs of mine and even of Amy's that I'm living through as I'm singing them that take different shape and different meaning depending on what's going on in the current moment or where we are in life. And that's kind of a cool thing because it's not, while the songs are time-stamped when they're recorded, they're not time-stamped in the life that they continue to live. I've been very grateful for that, that I have Amy and her songs instead of just my songs and that we have this like double life and we write differently and express ourselves differently and that's this double sort of experience of life that I get to live and the songs continue to grow and and mean different things at different times. So, and we never play songs that we don't feel like playing. So, it's not like the the waters are muddied with eh, we have to play that song. It's like <laughs> we we pick the songs that continue to give life to to our experience. You both have mentioned your songs, and I know that you write separately. And I know Amy, you've had a number of solo albums come out, and Emily also a, a solo album. So when you're writing songs, does something feel particularly like a solo song, and then something else feel like an Indigo Girl song? How does that work for you? <laughs> I uh, I think Emily and I are different in that, but I I definitely know within the first 
you know, writing of a song, whether it's the melody or the lyrics that steer me a certain way. You know, I, I often can hear Emily in my head, and I know it's an Indigo Girl song. So for me, I, it's, it, Emily is a muse for me, and my, my country band is a muse as well. So I pay attention to the muse, and if it doesn't fit in with any of that categories, I throw it in another pile, and it's the get-back-to-it-later pile, you know. But I think Emily has a different process of that. Well, I, I never end up with a glut of songs. I, I basically just have exactly what I need and not one more or less. And so uh, for my solo album, I, I wrote specifically for that. And then every, everything else, pretty much I can hear Amy um, all over, all over it. There have been a couple of times when the songs, you know, coming from a first person, they uh, were well suited to have a more sparse um, harmony arrangement. Um, but for the most part, even, you know, starkly interpersonal songs are, are really, really lifted and made bigger and better by what Amy contributes to them. So we, we just have never been able to write together. We have tried. But what we can do is arrange together. And so whenever we're getting ready to make an album, we have these long brainstorming sessions. And, you know, it's pretty democratic and it's pretty open and there aren't any hurt feelings. And it's just... It's really cool the way it's worked out through all these years. So we we do our solo things separate, and we both really encourage each other, and we love our solo work, the work of each other. And so, you know, it's like a good marriage. There's tons and tons of separation and distance and support for the individual. And then when we come together as Indigo Girls, we're excited to be back together and working on what we do together. So, you know, we just found something that's worked for, geez, I'm not even going to say how many years. It's pretty much 40 years. A million years. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would love to end with something from the new record. Do you, how about Change My Heart? Tell me a little bit about this song. Change My Heart is sort of like a journey through um, physics and where it intersects with spirituality. So in that sense, it's metaphysical and and it was inspired by political events but basically what it's saying is that it's a song to remind myself that when i think i know something or when i think i understand something to not be so sure and to to keep my heart sort of in the realm of well for lack of a better word good vibrations in communities with others so it's just an exploration of those kind of things Amy Ray, Emily Saliers, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it so much. Thanks, Virginia. Amy Ray and Emily Saliers, otherwise known as Indigo Girls. Their new record, Look Long, is due out in May. You can hear some of the songs from the new album if you go to our website, gpbnews.org. Click on the Programs tab for On Second Thought. There you can listen to our other episodes of the show. In fact, Julia Oster did, and she said on Facebook that our story last week about a couple who canceled their wedding and then threw together a pared-down celebration just days before Georgians were advised to stay home gave her the chills. She wrote, It sounded to me like this wedding turned out to be about what all weddings should be about, the love. And can't we use it now? Leave us your comment. Our Facebook group is GPB Radio's On Second Thought. You can also reach us on Twitter at OST Talk. Coming up, throwing a lifeline to Georgia's food service workers and other acts of kindness brighten a really rough week. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. Keep me in the
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Last May, I spoke with the folks behind the Atlanta-based nonprofit Giving Kitchen. They were on their way to accept the James Beard Humanitarian of the Year Award for their role in providing crisis grants, resources, and assistance to food service workers. Many in the industry are uninsured, and like the restaurants that employ them, have little financial cushion for weathering crises. With thousands of restaurants closed to avoid spreading COVID-19, the entire industry is in crisis. We thought it was the right time to check back in with Brian Schroeder, Executive Director of Giving Kitchen, to find out how they and other Georgians can help. Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Virginia. It's an honor to be on the show. Well, what a time for you. So many people in the restaurant and food service business are out of work. What are your biggest concerns, the things that you're hearing from people in the community right now? The biggest concerns... It's just the uncertainty, you know, uncertainty about unemployment, uncertainty about going to work, uncertainty about how this disease, this really serious global pandemic is going to impact our community. Um, I think the good news is, you know, while we can't see far down the road, uh, we're beginning to see at least a few days in front of us. Um, We we know that restaurants on some level are going to be able to stay open for the time being. Um, and offer carryout services. And I think as you know, the more we know, the more stable people are going to feel and, and the more work that organizations like Giving Kitchen are going to be able to accomplish. Well, how about people who do run restaurants, like your own parents apparently had yeah. to shut down operations. Did they have to let people go? It, they have. I mean, let's just be completely transparent. This is an incredibly tough time. There are people who are in pain that is really incomprehensible. And, you know, you're almost looking at a 90% unemployment rate with food service workers across Georgia. And, and many restaurants have had to make the really tough decisions. Many restaurants and food service organizations were, were making decisions about uh, laying off their employees or keeping employees without knowing what the state and federal government response was going to be. Um, and in some ways, you know, laying off their employees may have ended up being a, a better option than reducing hours um, because they're able to qualify for financial assistance from the state or federal government. Giving Kitchen's impact has been on helping individual food service workers with those unexpected expenses, you know, illness, injury, disaster, even funeral expenses. The shutdown from coronavirus, that has impacted hundreds of thousands of workers in the last month alone. So what does that mean for Giving Kitchen and its mission? Over the past three weeks, during all this chaos, uh, we've been able to provide $65,000 in financial assistance uh, to about 45 food service workers in crisis. And you know, these are people who are all impacted by COVID-19. And on top of that, they've had a, a loved one in ICU or they've been in a car accident or they've been diagnosed with lymphoma or they've had multiple strokes and one server whose premature baby is still in NICU. And so, you know, we were challenged in the early days of this crisis when we realized that hundreds of thousands of food service workers would go unemployed, um, both externally and internally. We were questioned, you know, should we do something about this? Can Giving Kitchen step in? And ultimately, we came to the decision that we need to stick to what we do best. We need to trust in our community and trust in the state government and the federal government to help with unemployment. Because if we had tried to, to, to go big, essentially, and, and help hundreds of thousands of people with millions of dollars of need, we would have failed. And in failing, we would have also failed the people who we've helped the past few weeks. Um, a lot of those people who are, are unemployed, and the best way we're going to be able to help them is connect them to resources in the community. 
uh, but we also have about a four times higher qualifying application rate, uh, which means we're helping four times as many people as we did this time last year. There's a lot of people in the past who they may have broken their ankle or um, you know, had to bury a loved one, and they wouldn't have asked for help from Giving Kitchen because they would have made it. Uh, but now you know, facing unemployment or underemployment, our services are going to be used now more than ever in, in our community. Well, the stimulus package that was signed into law this week vastly expands unemployment benefits to part-timers and to gig workers. Are you advising people on how to apply for unemployment? The best organization for people to get assistance for how to apply for unemployment or how food service establishments should go through the unemployment process is the Georgia Restaurant Association. Uh, we do have a resource hub on our website. It's givingkitchen.org slash COVID-19, and we're updating it daily, sometimes updating it hourly. Uh, it's a great resource for information about housing, information about financial assistance, um, information about who in our community is helping to feed food service workers. We put together some of the best resources available in our community for restaurant workers who are unemployed. My guest is Brian Schroeder, Executive Director of Giving Kitchen. We're talking about how the Atlanta-based nonprofit is trying in various different ways to help food industry workers during this extraordinarily difficult time. Brian, have you seen claims from people who have COVID-19 who need help with, with medical expenses, or, or how would you help them? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so first, primarily, our financial assistance comes in the form of living expenses. We help to pay someone's rent. We help to pay their utility bills. Um, we also recognize that right now, one of the hardest things to get is a doctor's appointment or a test uh, that you're actually confirmed to have COVID-19. Um, so, you know, we, we were worried in the very beginning when we said very publicly that we would help food service workers who have this illness or who've been quarantined. Well, how would they be able to provide that documentation? And so we've changed our accepted documentation standards to include assessments that come from Teladocs, whether it's the chicken pox or COVID-19. You know, right now they don't need to be in public. Uh, so we've had about 15 people who we've provided financial assistance who either have COVID-19 um, or who have symptoms similar to COVID-19. But we've also helped people who have children who have compromised immune systems and they're restaurant workers and they need to stay home. Uh, we've also helped restaurant workers who've had transplants. And because they've had a transplant, they're highly susceptible to COVID-19. Uh, and, and we anticipate that's going to continue to go up. Um, and also, you know, when we look ahead to some kind of a new normal um, this summer, this fall, uh, we know that the health of a food service worker is going to be scrutinized more than ever. Um, we know that there's going to be food service workers who are sent home maybe for weeks just because they had the common cold. Um, and so we know that not just today in the face of this crisis as it emerges, but over for the next, you know, for the next year, as we learn to live with COVID, uh, Giving Kitchen is going to continue to be a really important resource for food service workers, you know, learning to live with this. Well, you talked about staying in your lane, but I'm going to ask you a question slightly out of it. <laughs> thing, one thing I've seen popping up a lot is the fear that smaller establishments may not be able to weather what's going on now, you know, still having to pay rent with no revenue coming in. What do you think about the health of the industry at large and, and people like your parents? Uh, we face a big test. There's been incredible support from the state government. There's been incredible support from the local government. It, it's going to be a, a blocking and tackling affair. Um, restaurant by restaurant, business by business, how can they keep uh, cash flow to the place where they can relaunch and reboot? And I would say all of food service, 
um, not just small business, but big business too. And when this thing opens back up, uh, we need to give it as much of our love and attention as possible. I mean, I've, I've told people when, when food service comes back online, it's going to be like Mardi Gras every night of the week at my house. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go eat and drink and tip and, and celebrate. But, you know, I think this is a really tough time. And, and what I've seen from my perspective is people have really come together to support each other at the individual scale, but also on the restaurant scale and how restaurants support each other. It, it's going to be really tough. I, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it. And I think the, you know, people have asked me um, if I had a hundred dollars and I wanted to donate it to, to a food service worker in crisis, you know, where should I donate it? And I said, well, first, the first 25 bucks should go to the closest restaurant to help keep money rolling through the door. And then the next 25 bucks should go to tip. And then after that, you just need to figure out where your priorities lie. Is it uh, helping to feed a food service worker in crisis? Well, guess what? The Atlanta Community Food Bank is doing incredible work. Is it to help a food service worker who's sick or injured? Oh, well, that's Giving Kitchen. And I think that, you know, there's no single answer out there. This is going to be a community effort, uh, but we are going to take care of each other. There is an end to this, and we're going to emerge from this crisis in a better place from a food service perspective, I think, because people are starting to realize how important restaurant workers are in their lives. And, um, you know, we hope to carry that energy forward and, and create a, a more stable restaurant world for the men and women who work in food service. Okay, normally, much of your funding comes from the restaurant industry itself. Have you seen changes in donations coming in since coronavirus hit? We have. Um, you know, 60 to 70% of our funds come from either restaurants, restaurant-hosted events, or food distributors. And while we were in a great place financially, we looked at our future and thought, man, are we going to be able to make this? And then the most astonishing thing happened. Thousands of people many first time donors have come out to support Giving Kitchen. And it's beyond anything I've ever seen in my career in working in nonprofits. It has been one of the most incredible and uplifting moments of my entire life to see the support from the community and people supporting Giving Kitchen so that we can support food service workers in crisis. Uh, we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, we've got a long way to go and a lot of people to help, but uh, this actually gives us a, you know, a better foot to stand on in a lot of ways. Brian Schroeder, thanks so much for your time and all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Brian Schroeder, Executive Director of Giving Kitchen, an Atlanta-based nonprofit that provides crisis grants, resources, and assistance to food service workers. Tell us, Brian, where can people give? Yep, givingkitchen.org is the best way. There's a donate button in the corner. And if you're a food service worker or have a food service worker in your family, please visit givingkitchen.org slash COVID-19. There's a lot of great resources about how to take care of yourself and how to prepare yourself for the next few weeks, the next few months. All right. I will look forward to that Mardi Gras festival of the future. Thanks so much for your time. It's going to be a big time. Here are some other bright spots across the state. Molly Lieberman is executive director of the nonprofit Loop It Up Savannah, which typically provides arts and enrichment programming for kids around Chatham County. But as coronavirus began to shut down schools and services around the city, they made some adjustments. We realized, okay, we're not gonna have any of the special events we've planned. So what can we be doing to stay connected to our students and contribute in a positive way? And our mayor, Van Johnson, he was just kind of joking with me and he said, okay, so um, what are you gonna do? You're gonna do virtual crafts? 
we were laughing about it, but I thought, you know, we really need to do something because we don't want to just be one more thing that's not happening as normal in young people's lives. So we created what we are now calling the Art Smart Activity Kits. And in every single one, there's a sketchbook, there's some kind of coloring book, there's a book, we have different reading levels, there's a whole bag of like colored pencils and markers and crayons and things like that, as well as like a little note. We have some that people's kids have made, like these say, you're great, you're amazing, you rock. Uh, it's just a lot of good stuff. Art is good for your heart. Have fun making things. Largely, we are connecting our distribution efforts with situations where families are coming to get food because we don't want to be causing any additional reasons for people to congregate at all. So far, we've passed some of them out at YMCAs. There's just so many new and unprecedented factors to consider in everything that we're doing on every level. We've had thousands and thousands of items donated to go into the kits. Even though this is a really horrible, stressful time, this is also in some ways bringing out the very best in us. So we're really grateful for that and really grateful for everyone that's contributed to what we're doing. We just want our students to know that we're thinking about them and we love them. We're sad that we're not with them. We miss them. And we want our kids to know that they're not alone. There's this huge team of people that care about them and want them to feel as okay as possible in a really stressful time. Also, you know, that they can make beautiful stuff when they're at home. And we're kind of like reinventing the community web. We have a, a hashtag we're using in Savannah, which is same love, more distance. Like we're just having to figure out how to show the same love, but space ourselves out a little bit more and figure out how to do that safely. That's Molly Lieberman, executive director of Loop It Up Savannah. You can find pictures of some of the art kids are making by searching the hashtag ArtSmartActivityKits on Twitter or Facebook. People across the state are finding ways to create activities at home for themselves and for others, like Atlanta resident Eddie Farr. For work, he builds props for escape rooms, and in his free time, he makes tech-based art. His latest creation? A musical hand-washing timer that plays a tune of your choice for, you guessed it, that recommended 20 seconds. Or, as Eddie explains, a little bit longer, just to make sure your hands are really clean. So how did he come up with the idea to create this DIY apparatus? I was working on three projects, all of which were postponed. And so I just had um, all these components lying around. So I took, uh, you know, an ultrasonic sensor from one project. I took a microcontroller from another project. And I took a MP3 player from a third project and just combined all three of these to make this little uh, fun little way of washing your hands. Eddie knows he could just count or sing in his head, but the project had other benefits during this time of fear and uncertainty. I usually turn to creative outlets like this whenever I'm feeling anxious or a little stressed out. And this project in particular, it took me a few days to design. And this just kind of helps distract me from everything that's kind of going on right now, as well as providing like a fun sort of practical way to help people out right now. 
And he's selling these kits at the cost of the materials themselves so that other people can benefit from this at-home activity as well. I guess it's intended as like a fun activity for parents to do with their kids. Um, and I've had a few families reach out and they've had some fun building it and putting their own songs onto the MP3 player. I've also provided um, a link to all the components as well as like a walkthrough and the code uh, just so that anybody could pick up these parts somewhere and build it themselves. Eddie has some other projects that are keeping him busy in quarantine. He's applying his techie talents to help healthcare workers during the crisis. Yeah, so I'm also working with um, another local artist, ATL TV head, and we've been reaching out to hospitals and first responders and 3D printing um, reusable face shields just because we have this technology sitting around and we might as well put it to some good use right now during the shortage of uh, PPE equipment. That's tech artist Eddie Farr with the song he chose for his hand wash timer, Swinging Spathophyllums by Mort Garson. You can check out his projects by a build your own hand wash timer kit or contribute to his 3D printing project by going to Eddie's Instagram. He's at froghouse, and that's spelled F-R-E-A-U-G, house. We'll put a link to that at gpbnews.org. Another bright spot to celebrate this week, video of residents of Midtown Atlanta from their balconies applauding healthcare workers at the change of shift. Well, we would love to add our own roaring applause for the healthcare workers, the cleaning crews, the grocery clerks, and all the frontline employees who are putting their health at risk to keep the rest of us safe. We want to add to that the engineering staff at GPB. We say thank you. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are engineers. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. As always, thank you for listening and for staying home and for just getting through the day at a very strange time. See you next time on Second Thought. <laughs>